Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Welcome to Life Out Loud, a new literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Karen, one of your co-hosts today. And I'm Karina. Thanks for joining us for episode two, Our Father. In the stories we'll hear tonight, student writers discuss fathers and or fatherhood in some way or another, a topic we've realized when reviewing submissions and classwork, etc., is a complicated subject for many. Yes, you're right, Karina. This comes up a lot in the CNF genre, and I think the writers that we'll feature tonight all have something really special to add to the conversation. Um, so let's get started. Our first piece is actually an author who would like to remain anonymous for various reasons. Let's take a listen. I press the heel of my foot down first, slowly, as if I'm in a horror movie. Just imagine eerie music playing in the background while I slowly walk to my death. I peek my head through the elevator doors with disgust. Here we go on another family adventure. We have to survive in this for the next six days, I think. I roll my eyes as I watch my sister joyfully enter the elevator. I observe the rusty, silverish doors close behind her and her annoying smile. It feels as though my eternity is doomed. The dirty liquid on the floor crowds around my feet and the scent of chlorine water is in the air. We've been in Ocean City, Maryland for only a few minutes and I'm already hating it. Our vacations never lasted longer than six days. But his vacations, by himself, lasted about two weeks. Yeah, I might sound like a brat because there are kids who are less fortunate, sure. But we have the money. Why are we always getting cheap crap? When I say we, I really mean me, my sister, and my mom. My father doesn't get himself cheap crap. You could tell where he stood or where he wanted to stand in society by his Gucci belts, his new pair of elite glasses for one set of eyes that he'd come home with every so often, the nonstop shoes and hats that cycled through his closets, and the watches? Forget about the watches, the names of which I could barely pronounce. He was a walking wardrobe. I called him Narnia while mocking the bullshit lectures he'd give me and my sister, Yeshaya. You girls can't be too vain. Money doesn't grow on trees. Y'all are too spoiled. Blah, blah, blah. Even though we all lived together, me, mom, Yeshaya, and dad, he was the only one who was spoiled. And sometimes my sister, but only when he was in a good mood. The thing with dad was that he wasn't a deadbeat. He just never knew how to want to spend time with us. He'd do it to shut us up. Well, I guess he enjoyed taking Yeshaya places, just them two. So anytime he took the family somewhere, he thought it was something spectacular. I'm pretty sure he thought he was Daddy Warbucks and wanted the rest of us to act like we were Annie or her orphan friends, just lucky to get those small moments with him wherever he wanted to take us. His income was too good for these rinky-dink vacations. 
those that left us surrounded by old, obese people who looked at us like we were too ethnic to be there. We deserve better, especially me, I often thought. All three of us girls would always argue over who deserved what from dad. Mom thought that since she was married to him, he should take us all out more, and especially her out on dates. Treat her like the queen she is. Yeshaya and I knew the deal, though. We knew the marriage was a wrap. They were literally just roommates. Mom slept upstairs, and Dad decided to take the basement where he didn't just sleep. That's where he chose to live. One day, he just started sleeping down there. Then he took his clothes. Then pots and pans. After a while, he'd cook his own meals in his own downstairs space. So when we heard Mom complain over and over about their marriage, we could only focus on reality. The reality was that they would eventually get a divorce, but divorce or not, we'd always be his daughters, so he should do more for us. The reality was also that Yeshaya was his favorite. Anyone who spent a mere day with our family would see that awkward shit. Why did we choose this hotel? I ask, completely annoyed and not at all hiding it. My snobbish attitude gushed through my post-question sigh. It slapped Yeshaya in the face, missing Dad, the intended target. Her rude 11-year-old self responded fast. Makai, we didn't even get to our room yet, and you're acting like a brat already? Dad tried to make it fun for all of us. Just be grateful. I watched my sister walk away, following Dad to the front desk. She even walks like him, I think. They practically own the same face. They had the same pouty big lips that I wish I was blessed with. The same clear eyes, nose, cheeks, even head shape. My therapist once explained to me that dad showed Yeshaya more affection because I was like the exact replica of mom, who he doesn't get along with. My eyes showed that I wanted to strangle her for what she said in front of dad. It's like she was always working to retain her status as favorite child, which in turn made me want to shove her little ass into the suitcase and send her straight back to Brooklyn. Do you have the discount code? The lady at the front desk asked. Discount was the only word I heard in that sentence to confirm my argument. Cheapskate. No, really. I was SpongeBob and dad was Mr. Krabs. The worst day on the vacation was July 27th, 2014 my little sister's birthday. See, that's another thing. Yeshaya always received amazing vacations as birthday gifts, while most of my birthdays were always spent at some table eating a regular dinner. Don't get me wrong. Of course it's easier to celebrate a summer baby's birthday than it is a fall baby's. But damn, that doesn't make it all right to give one child a whole outfit and the other socks. My last birthday, I turned 17, and mom threw some paychecks away to make me feel like a Disney princess. No, queen. We booked a sexy lounge in the city for me and my friends. Dad showed up and paid for some nice calamari and shrimp for himself. Of course, he knew he wouldn't have to share with mom since she's highly allergic. He didn't ask me if I wanted some. But I did receive two pairs of Payless boots from him. I told Yeshaya over and over in the months before that if dad asks what I want for my birthday or Christmas, all I want is money. But none of them ever listened. I wore the boots twice. They fell apart the second time. So, 
here I am starting to actually like Ocean City. It owns up to its name. We stay at a hotel where the beach is our front yard and the boardwalk is like our little piece of Coney Island. I relish waking up to the fresh air hugging my asthmatic city lungs. And I think, okay, maybe this won't be so bad. But on July 27th, we're trying to figure out what to do for Yashaya's birthday, and my father is just shooting out ideas for things that only he wants to do, acting like this is his birthday. How come Yashaya can deal with him, yet she can't deal with me? Plenty of times I hear her say, you're just like dad, so selfish and bipolar. Maybe we're just too similar. It gets to the point where we are driving around for at least two hours trying to decide on something, anything to do as a family. It's like being in a car with a bunch of dodo birds. None of us can adapt to what the other wants to do. I wonder if our unit will go extinct at some point, too. My dad's nostrils begin to flare, his fingers anxiously tapping against the back of my mom's headrest. We're going to get you a birthday cake, then play it by ear after that, all right? He says to my sister, who smiles so hard that her right eye, that which is still incredibly smaller than the left due to cataracts, goes almost invisible. Yeshaya was born with congenital cataracts, which practically means that she is blind in her right eye. She had to go through numerous surgeries to receive any vision at all in that eye. It was extremely blurry for her, and she'd normally get bullied for being the only one in class with an abnormally small eye and thick glasses to help her see better. She was always way stronger than me when it came to getting bullied. Even at 11, she just took it, knew she was better than that, and moved on. One day, Mom called me in the room with Terry glossy eyes, the red veins proving their existence on her sclera. Through sniffles, she said, some boy was teasing Yashaya about her eye again. I looked at Yashaya, her head held high, her little eyes squinting through the thick glasses she needed to wear for better vision. I asked her what happened. She takes a deep inhale as if her life depended on it, closing both of her eyes. His name is Jordan. He said that my tiny eye is ugly. She shrugged her shoulders, looking down at her school books on the bed, opening one and flipping through the pages. I don't care, though she says, looking up at me with her eyebrows raised high on her forehead, as if they were running from the start line of her future tribulations. It's whatever. I often believe that her disability is another reason why my sissy and dad are so close. They are both tough when it comes to stuff like that. I, however, am chronically emotional like mom. I'm not so tough. So, we all start getting ready for a night dedicated to newly 11-year-old Yeshaya, and I'm actually excited for it. I get all dolled up, not realizing that the night will be filled with voodoo. We drive to the Dunkin' Donuts with the lights above flickering and the D in Dunkin' hanging, and he tells Mom and Yeshaya to go in and get the cake. This is his way of letting Mom know that she is paying for it, I know. My mom looks at him shocked. She does this face a lot when she refuses to stand up for herself. She sighs and clears her throat as she tells Yeshaya, come on, taking the wallet out of her bag as her long, shiny locks fall in her face. She removes herself from the car, the tattoos on her arms glistening with a little bit of sweat. They walk in the store while I stay behind with him. I have to stick up for her. 
She'll be proud and so will Grandma, I think. I take a deep breath. Why would you offer to get a cake if you're not paying for it? I break the silence. Why would you do that? You know Mom is having a hard time at work, and she's paying for almost everything on this trip. He moves his arm from the passenger seat headrest, where it was resting. He starts massaging his temples at a slow, strenuous pace and sighs. I feel the anger. I know what's coming when he does this. I can hear the sucking, squeaking noise that happens when he bites his bottom lip. Hard. Listen, little girl, you need to slow your fucking roll. My mouth quivers when he says, little girl. Not just because he says it, but because when he says that, I feel like a little girl. Anytime I talk to him, I feel like a little girl. I'm 18, but I shrink down to three. I've been taking you guys here and there. Y'all are too spoiled. I've been working my ass off. I try tuning him out, but it fails when he looks back at me and asks me a question, half laughing. When he laughs in your face during a serious matter, it, it basically means that you're the butt of the joke. I was the ass. Why don't you get a job and pay for the cake, he asks. Broke ass girl. He doesn't understand that my whole summer, my whole year, was dedicated to finding jobs. To finding something, anything, so that my mouth wouldn't quiver. My stomach wouldn't tighten up when I'd have to walk downstairs to ask him for money. What I don't understand is how my father told me numerous times that he didn't want me working this year due to school. That he didn't want me working at just any store either. Oh, and forget about trying to be a waitress. He got mad at me for asking a restaurant we were eating at whether or not they were hiring. This man must have really suffered some brain loss massaging his temples that hard, I thought. It's a shout war. My army is a three-year-old girl. No shield. My father's army is compacted with insults and contradictions. I keep trying to explain to him that I have been trying, trying to get a job. I'm trying to be more independent. I haven't been sitting on my ass. I don't want to have to depend on him for shit, and I won't be much longer if I can help it. We exchange more dark, blurry words before I get out of the car and slam the precious door to our bullshit father-daughter relationship. I burst into the Dunkin' Donuts, tears skiing down my face, and let Mom and Yeshaya know that I will not get back into the car, no matter what. My mascara now decorates my face like it's Halloween, I realize, as the employee who's helping my mom choose the cake slowly backs away, as if this isn't all awkward enough already. I mean, for crying out loud, it's only the four of us in here. He couldn't act like he was sweeping or putting away the ice creams or something. I walk back to the hotel with the birthday girl, who doesn't want me to walk back alone, even though she sort of blames me for her spoiled day. I know, though, that she really blames mom and dad, especially mom. Yeshaya believes in telling it like it is, even at the age of 11. She's tired of both of us being pressured to stand up for mom all the time. She wants mom to stand up for herself, and so do I. I look down at my baby sister's milk chocolate face, her pink bottom lip sticking out more than the dark line top, her little eyes squinting from the fog pressing against her glasses, her broad shoulders leading the way as her thick legs keep her steady. She understands disappointment. She understands divorce. She understands that she'll be able to love both parents without living with both of them. 
but she doesn't understand why her birthday couldn't have ended differently. Why mom just couldn't tell dad herself that she wasn't paying for the cake. Why I couldn't just stay quiet sometimes and keep the peace. I don't think she questions dad, though. I think part of her actually accepts him the way he is, his flaws. But she can't accept those parts of mom, those parts of me. She expects more from us, expects us to have the strength she has, which makes me mad. But I can't blame her. She's the baby. She acts like it's whatever. But I know she's sad. I know she'd hoped things would be different today. That this vacation would be fun, that we'd eat cake together and laugh like other families do. That Eleven would have a good start. And then I wonder how long it'll be until she stops looking forward to birthdays, holidays, and vacations altogether. It's enough to make me start crying again on this pathetic, humid walk back to the hotel. I know she's still mad at me, but we grip onto each other's hands anyway. The chunkiness of hers filling the gaps of mine, trying to find our way back. Just two sisters, trying to find their way. Oh, the drama of this piece, it's so good. Um, and we actually have the writer with us now. So thank you so much for joining us today, Em. Thank you so Hello. much for having me. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. We He's absolutely good. love your piece and how dramatic you. you are in it. Wow, thank you. The horror, for instance. <laughs> I just... <laughs> um, one of my favorite parts in this piece is how unapologetic you are. The line, we deserve better, especially me. It, it stood out to me. In particular because I don't perceive any fear about the possibility or the audience possibly judging you. And I mean that as a compliment because you so fearlessly speak your mind in this piece. Wow, thank you. I, I mean, I tried as hard as I can not to be too dramatic because that's kind of my personality. But I'm glad that it came across as something very entertaining for the reader. Um, it was it was great. I really enjoyed it. It Thank stood you. out to me. It was very like I could see you. It set really? the tone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so good. When you wrote this story, though, was the audience or how they might receive such raw honesty on your mind? Hmm. Um, and if so, how did it influence your writing process? Wow. Um, at first writing this, I didn't think that I would have an audience except for my professor, Madrazo. But I wasn't too worried about how like my professor was going to perceive this because I was just trying to be as upfront as possible. That's what I was taught to do when writing. And then when I realized like more people were going to read it, I was kind of nervous. That I would look like the brat. But at the same time, I think that that's what helped make it so honest yes. is how my mindset was at that time. Yeah. I feel like your um, brattiness didn't really, like, come off. Like, you found a way that mm -hmm. you could be honest and you could kind of, you know, say things like, this is what I deserve, mm -hmm. but still come off as, like, the lovable protagonist mm -hmm. character. I thought that was, like, expert how you did that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I found unique in how in your writing you channeled your frustration with how you felt towards your father through your sister. Mm -hmm. And at one point you described that she even walks like him and you pra they practically have the same face yet the relationship that you have with your sister is so different from the one that you have with your father at the end of the piece we experience a sweet moment where you walk away with your sister who didn't want you to walk alone 
which almost when I got to that part, I was kind of like so surprised by that mm. because I kind of felt like she didn't like you at mm. first. So I was like, no, but at the end, they, they, they kind of come together in a way mm. that was very interesting to see. So tell us a little more about how you s- chose to write with that duality in your relationship with your sister and your relationship with your dad. At first writing it, um, honestly, I was only trying to focus on my dad and use my like the relationship with me and my dad and use my sister as an example. And then the more um, the more drafts I kept writing and the more I got help from Madrazo, she helped like to kind of piece it together with me to see that my sister is actually the main theme behind it. It was. It was fantastic. Um, But what stood out with me was the strength and maturity of your younger sister mm-hmm. it's just incredible it's so interesting because in your piece she's only 11 years old mm-hmm. yet she sounds like the most mature person in this entire piece <laughs> not to say that your brattiness no, didn't no. <laughs> i totally understand um but even this strength though it reminds you of your father mm-hmm. you say they both they are both tough when it comes to things like that and I got the sense of jealousy in that mm. moment, in, in that specific quote. Mm. Do you think that having a better relationship with your father would have improved the relationship between you and your sister? Um, I definitely do think so. I wasn't trying to give this, like, I wasn't really trying to give this sense of um, jealousy, but more of a sense of the fact that, like, I look up to these two people, but yet we all can't get together and mm. form a love that I needed you know so Mm -hmm. it wasn't as much of jealousy as wow you guys are so strong and if only I can be involved in you guys relationship Mm -hmm. um and I definitely think that majority of our arguments between me and my sister was because of how my father treated her because most of our arguments were centered around that and my sister would either you know not understand why I felt that way or she would just say you know like you don't have the relationship with him and that's okay which I didn't feel like it was Mm -hmm. so yeah how is the relationship between you and your father now? Has there been any changes since, I guess, this piece or mm-hmm. this incident? Um, yes, there have been a lot of differences. Um, when I was 17, uh, not writing this, but when I was actually 17, um, I had a hard time speaking to my father. Um, around that age, 17, 18, we were really bumping heads. And it just, like... It just literally slowed down after the summer when we had a big argument. So I realized that my mom was kind of the peacemaker in all of it. And although it was kind of helping, I needed to be the one to step up and talk to him. And I actually did that like last month. I was really nervous about it, but I did. And, um, you know, like we spoke for about an hour. I was crying to him and stuff. And he understood and he told me that he would definitely try to be a better father to me and try to just get as close as he is to my sister. So... We're definitely like working it out. We talk a little more now. It's really nice. That's awesome. It's so interesting that you say that your mom was kind of the peacemaker. Yeah. Because I feel like throughout this she was just kind of like so. almost like almost like in the crossfire mm-hmm. of all this. Of all this mm-hmm. the, this these dynamics within mm-hmm. you know, father daughter relationships between like the two of you, between mm-hmm. you and your sister. Yeah. So it's it's it, it's interesting to see that, you know, like stepped up yeah i she, felt the same way i'm mm, so sorry no it's okay Go ahead. I, like i i just was I, it was like everyone was fighting for his attention mm, yeah and it was it was really interesting yeah. and it's so nice mm-hmm. to hear you say that you yeah. know from you you've gotten that courage mm-hmm. you, i think it's it. all maturity and one thing i can say i'm really upset i didn't focus on it more well just a little more is the fact that my mom 
maybe she didn't step up for herself as much, but she always did it with her children. She always did it with me. She was always the peacemaker with me. So if she never spoke, you know, like how she, well, not never, but if she didn't speak on certain points to my father about how she felt, she always did it with us. So nice. <laughs> so good to hear. So um, what, you've already kind of shared a lot of things that kind of went on behind the scenes mm -hmm. in regards to like your thought process and things. Mm -hmm. But what, if anything, would you like the reader to know if anything, like, mm -hmm. additionally about this piece? Uh, what would I like them to know? I guess yeah. just that family does mean a lot. And when I wrote this piece, it was extremely emotional for me. Like, I was writing this from a point where I was just like, I give up with my dad. And realizing that, you know, you, you do have emotions for the people closest to you, no matter how much you guys argue. You mm -hmm. still have emotions behind that. Mm -hmm. So just knowing that, you know, things can come around you know you're if you have a sibling definitely that's usually your rock yeah so yeah that's my biggest thing that's beautiful that's thank just you. nice to hear i yeah. like i love a happy ending <laughs> okay. thank you thank you so much um for being here and being so candid and open with us it i'm sure our readers appreciate it and we certainly do as well thank yes, you so much definitely. guys for having thank me so and for much. reading it thank you <laughs> Our next piece, Thoughts in Transit, is by Rosemary Azario. Rosemary Azario is a Mexican-American born and bred in the South Bronx. She has ridden the two train from end to end just to sleep and read teenage romance novels. She is a junior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, studying psych by day and undoing the whitewashing she has endured by night. Rose aims to get her degree majoring in forensic psychology with a minor in gender studies. Her involvement on campus as secretary of the Youth Justice Club has ignited a personal dedication to helping diverse populations, including the LGBTQIA, incarcerated youth, undocumented communities of color, the mentally ill, and those who are economically disadvantaged. Her poem, Thoughts in Transit, won first place in John Jay's Immigration and Deportation Initiative Contest following a publication by the New York State Assembly Task Force on New Americans. She has several interests that vary from astronomy to physics to horseback riding. Rose is a militant activist who currently works under New York Communities for Change to recruit an army of ambitious students to take to the streets and risk arrest to demand reform for issues involving low wages, race, immigration, and education. Her most difficult challenge and most rewarding triumph would be to influence psychology practices such as testing and research to be culturally sensitive and plausible to fully integrate psychology and social justice. A man sitting next to me smells like grass and cigarettes. He's a small man, but his hands are so big and worn out, like the machinery that they treat him as, rusty, but working to the point of malfunction, just like the relationship between me and my father, which is exactly what the man on the two train looks like, a little Mexican man, with dark hair and baggy eyes, torn jeans and dirty work boots, just like my father, with a black Jan sport book bag that smells like the company that exploits him, like grass and cigarettes, or like the fish market, where my father knows is the death of him. He made a vow to his children that he cannot live for himself because he is too old to dream, too Mexican to be citizen, and far too stubborn 
to give me and two other siblings anything but love. Just like the man on the two train, who probably has children to feed, where he works less than minimum wage jobs to make limited food on the table. Just like my father, far too old for the physical work he's given, but too motivated to stop, hoping that his children will learn the vocabulary he doesn't know, the language he rarely spoke. Just like the man on the two train, with the gray mustache and the foreign name, who was falling asleep next to me on the two train. And he nods off and drifts away to the place where his parents once lived and where he once called home. Next stop is 72nd Street, only to wake up and realize that he'll never be young, and even if he were, he would not be back in Puebla. He'd work his way, only to end up in the same place he's in today, just like my father, and I wonder how he doesn't go insane, because I can't travel without the iPod my father bled for, because I wouldn't dare leave myself with my own thoughts, just like the man with the baggy eyes, ripped jeans, and dirty work boots, just like the man on the two train. I cry because I look into his blank eyes and I don't know what he's thinking. Just like my father, who looks like the cracks on my palms, so close and always loving, but to the world he's so small and crooked across my skin and so unnoticed, just like the man on the two train. Oh my gosh, Rose. It gets me every time. With me as well. The part where you say that your father bled for this iPod, it always makes me think back to like my phone or my devices and how my parents who are also immigrants have probably bled for them as well. And it, yeah, it really hits home. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you. So Rose, your piece is the first creative nonfiction prose poem piece that we've heard here so far on Life Out Loud. Tell us, what inspired you to write this piece? Well, I was actually uh, 17 years old. I was in high school, and uh, we were given some uh, academic credit for just going out and looking for kind of career-based stuff outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be a great chance to explore my creative side. So I decided to go for, like, poetry. So I went in for workshops, um, and which is actually fun fact that I it was like the first time I ever took the train by myself oh, man. <laughs> I went from uh from my high school to this downtown place um on 27th street and I took a lot of workshops there and it inspired me to kind of write more about myself rather than just like hypothetical stories wow 17 yes <laughs> I don't even know what I was doing at 17 <laughs> not that that's for sure <laughs> So we all live in New York City, and for those listening who may not live in New York City, I want you all to know that it is very hard <laughs> to find a seat on a crowded subway car. So I'm interested in knowing, like, did you write this piece on the subway itself? Did you manage to snag a seat? Or was this more of a reflection after of a man that you saw on the train one day, which you then wrote about when you were home? Like, walk us through that process. Well, it was actually pretty exciting considering it was one of the a very personal poem, uh, which is something that I was not used to writing back then. And I was so lucky enough to catch it at the moment. So on my way to the workshop, the poetry workshop, thinking about all the real stories everyone's been performing and writing about, um, I've I felt like it kind of just struck like lightning. I sat down and 
uh, man sitting next to me actually did remind me of my father and mm -hmm. I kind of just began writing and it's uh that's kind of how it happened when magic strikes <laughs> oh when lightning <laughs> strikes actually when the clock strikes oh. <laughs> So, Rose, in short and very simple lines, you create this unbelievably powerful imagery. How did you decide what the right words would be to describe this man that made you think of your father? Did you find yourself, like, drafting and redrafting this piece to make the words fit the person? Or was it just something that came to you through inspiration? Did it just hit you? It was definitely very on-the-spot kind of inspiration. Um all my all my life kind of just like riding the subway and like being in any type of like public place and I would see other people I would see uh, street vendors and I would see people in stores that kind of just remind me of my family mm -hmm. and I felt like the workshop really did help me bring out the idea that I can connect with this man because he looked like my father it's absolutely like ridiculous how how similar they looked with the exact same boots mm. with the same jeans and the same mm. book bag and I just kept thinking well that's just kind of like what my family looks like a bunch of uh, hard workers who kind mm. of were similar stuff so it was definitely uh it, there was no drafting at all it was just very it was very in the moment and I actually believe that like 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 I said all my life I've seen my family in different people's faces so um, it was like perfect timing. I was getting to my creative side and I sat down next to someone and, and finally I got to express what I felt all my life, that I, I do connect with other people because they look and maybe they, maybe they don't, but I think they actually do have like a similar life to my dad. Wow. The way that you're able to make those connections. Mm -hmm. What I love about that is that when we were talking earlier, you mentioned like flower vendors and street vendors and these are all typically people that are of hispanic descent but you don't see them as looking like your family because of that hispanic heritage you see them because they're hard workers mm. and i think that is so beautiful and i think that's so special to like think about that okay they're hispanic but they're also hard workers that they have this drive and that's what you see in your family and that's, that's what, what you, you identify in yeah within them yes, that's definitely. beautiful and so important to thank you keep in mind <laughs> so yeah one of the many brilliant things about this piece is that it breaks away from that stereotype that people have of the united states as a melting pot where dreams just magically come true um, for example when you describe your father as tool to dream and too mexican to be citizen you reveal a reality that many people just don't talk about and that is that not everyone's experience of the united states fits into this american dream ideal that we're all taught um so was breaking this idealistic perception something that you intended to do or something that just kind of flowed naturally it definitely wasn't in my intentions to kind of um let the world know um i guess the hardships of being like the the daughter of a of um undocumented people mm. um you have people calling us kind of slurs calling us like mm. anchor babies yeah. as mm. in people give birth to us just so they can stay in the country mm. yeah. um i'm very politically active now so um this isn't i'm proud of myself for when i wrote it but it definitely wasn't to like break any walls mm. it was just to express myself and i think that's kind of the whole point of 
the poem. It's kind of, it's not to convince other people to look at me or listen to me, but it's more to share my experiences with those who have similar experiences. It's definitely, uh, I'm proud of myself. Like I said, it wasn't in my intentions, but I, I can definitely see it being used as a tool to let mm -hmm. other people know that this American dream is kind of like, it's not what we think it is. Yeah. It's... <laughs> I, can I just say I'm so <laughs> proud of you too, Rose. I, I guess we all are here yeah. to be able to have you and, and speak so openly and so candidly about real issues that matter. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, Rose, my dear, thank you so much for being here and coming in and telling us the story. We know that it isn't the easiest thing in the world to talk about, but we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so next we have Carlos Gonzalez with us. Tonight he's reading his piece, When the Clock Strikes. Carlos Gonzalez is a New York City native, born and raised in Queens with the aspirations of getting out of the Big Apple and seeing the world, which he plans to do through his passion of writing and filmmaking. Currently an English major at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Carlos finds solace in studying social dynamics and self-development practices. When not writing, Carlos is constantly trying to experience the world, whether it be through the last-minute road trips or late-night walks. No adventure is mundane. The Grand Hall is stale with the colors of white and gray. It's missing its chandelier. A microwavable feast is laid out in front of us on the plastic see-through table, hot and ready for my father's arrival. I know the drill, so I bring the checkers, chess, and playing cards from the desk along the wall. Behind it, stands a tall and burly blonde-haired woman whose face is wrinkled by what seems to be a lifetime of discontent. Next to her stands an equally menacing-looking male counterpart. Both wear shades. I think to protect me from the power of their gaze. I know it's rude to stare, but I, I, I can't stop looking, trying to see behind their reflective lenses. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes one. My father emerges from a room hidden in plain sight, the door camouflaged against the white wall with no frame. His uniform is different from mine. I wear a white button-up with a clip-on tie and corduroys, a black belt, and black shoes. His looks a lot like the janitors at my school. He wears a jumpsuit, but instead of dark blue, my father's is light brown, and instead of a name tag, he has numbers sewn onto his jumpsuit. A paralyzing fear blocks the signal traveling through my spine every time I think of college for this exact reason. Why would someone voluntarily live in a place like this? Why would anyone want to go to college if this is what it's like here? I mean, with the scary security guards, all the security checks and restrictions, so many restrictions, and every student looks so sad all the time. They also look much older than what I thought college people were supposed to look like. And why are there only men at this college? I thought women were allowed to go to college too. I guess the fact that women aren't allowed to study here explains why Ma doesn't go to college. Still, she's always stressing it's important, telling me and my sister that we have to go one day too. I wonder if Vanessa is as freaked out about this as I am. I wonder if she'll ever go. I know for a fact that if my mother did study here, 
she would certainly put potted plants around the room to add some life to the grand hall. After all the fear and questions settle, I feel a blinding sadness at the thought that my father would prefer to stay here rather than come home with us. I look around at his classmates and see men gribbled by age, glaring into the faces of their beloveds trying to look present. Sometimes, I catch the same expression on my father's face when I talk to him. His eyes are fixed on me the whole time, but it's hard to tell where his mind has wandered. I like to think it's because he notices how much I've changed since he's last seen me in person. I mean, I'm practically almost eight now, and it's been a while since my last visit. College takes a long time, I guess. This must be hard on him, too. I look up to him for having the strength to pursue his dreams, even though it means being so far from his family. I hope I can have that kind of strength one day, too. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes four. My father asked me if I would like to go to the playroom with all the other kids. In there, flowers are painted on the walls and a TV hangs up in the top corner of the room. The kids in there stare at it quietly. It makes the children its prisoners. No. I refuse to travel 10 hours in an overcrowded van to spend time with my father, only to be held captive by someone else's mediocre attempt at fun. Besides, I'm old enough to stay here and be a part of the grown-up conversation. I understand what everyone is saying. Most of the time. Some of the time. Maybe I should see what's on TV. No. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes six. My father and I have a game of chess. To my surprise, I beat him. The next game, the next game he beats me in less than 10 moves. He explains that a foolish man will show all his cards the first time around, and a patient man will exploit them the next time around. Since when are cards used in chess? This must be the type of things he learns in here. I'm starting to see why Ma says school is so important now. Anyway, I refuse to be the foolish man when we play again. I'll be smart too. I think, like my dad. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes seven. Roll call. My father lines up with the rest of his classmates. One by one, their names are called. They walk up to the desk along the wall. Each walk is different. Some are fast, some are slow. My father's is proud. At least, it seems to be. I always heard he had difficulty expressing emotions other than pride and anger both of which he expressed very well. You are a Gonzalez! His voice echoes in the farthest corners of my mind whenever I feel scared. He recites his numbers to the scary blonde woman and walks back to us. If you're proud, no one can take anything away from you. My father has shown me. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes eight. Everyone is tired. The conversations hold little volume. He must have seen our expressions of defeat as we try to come up with things to share with him. He tells us it's time to go and to not let too much time pass before our next visit. He turns to me and says, take care of your mother and sister. Daddy has to go now. I know I should do what he says, but I start to panic. Why? I explosively whine. Why can't you just come with us? It's only school. You can take a few days off. Hijo, cuando tú creces, entenderás por qué es que no me puedo ir contigo. Yo solamente espero que no me odies. Growing up with a Colombian mother ensures my understanding of the words coming off his tongue, 
with rehearsed execution. I just don't understand why he's saying these words. I'm proud of my father. Why would he think I will hate him one day? He says his goodbyes and takes a slow, proud trek back to the door hidden in plain sight, looking back at us every few steps. His face looks more agonized than the last time. I look up to see my mother and sister's eyes pink with the pain of absence. I rarely see them cry. We rarely ever see them. That's when they cry, when we see him. But I try not to cry. Dad never cries. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes 8.05. He's waiting outside the camouflage door leading into places unknown to me. We're waiting near it, about 50 feet away, leading into the brisk air of higher altitudes when I'm blinded by watery sadness. I can't help it. I can't remember much of the time we had before the Grand Hall days, but this unshakable sense of attachment has its white-knuckle grip around my father and I. My throat swells and my legs fill with restlessness. His door opens, and it's time for him to go back to class. I know. I know I have to let him go, but I can't. I, I just can't. I run to him, showing him I'm not ready to be the man of the house yet. I'm not ready to take care of Ma and Vanessa like he said. I run, showing my father that I'm not ready to leave without him, not ready to do the things he needs me to do. I crash into his chest where underneath I hear lungs searching for the brisk air. I crash into his arms where strength meets tenderness. I crash into a broken man embracing his broken son. But then he says, I have to go. Have to be strong and proud. Have to be a Gonzalez. I refuse to be a prisoner. The clock strikes 8.15. We are finally past the last security checkpoint. My head hangs low as we reach the final door leading outside. My legs feel heavy, and the square rubber interlaced mat on the floor right in front of the door slows them down before it brings them to a complete halt. This is always the first mat that greets me when I come, and the last to say goodbye when I leave, yet, this time, it looks different. I guess I was never smart enough to notice it before. Well, I'm a lot wiser now, like I said. I'm almost eight, and I know how to read now, so I take a second to absorb the letters. I see a black border, and inside, the color gray takes up most of the mat. A bald eagle spreads its wings in the middle. It holds a stem in one talon and a scroll in the other. A crest surrounds it, and on the bottom are the letters. I sound out. Fed. Fe federal cor correct? Correctional? Facility? I somehow figure out. I'm not quite sure what it is, but somehow. I know it's not school. Somehow. I suddenly know that my entire life has been a lie. I crash onto my knees, onto the words, onto the mat filled with the knowledge that everything, everything has been a lie. School? This isn't a school! I yell as I'm dragged out by my arm and into the brisk air freedom. In the parking lot, I keep screaming. I refuse to be a prisoner. Ten years later, the clock strikes 12.14 a.m. 
I run past the Mandarin Oriental on my way to my first day at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and see a man emerge from a door camouflaged as a wall. He's taking a cigarette break and he looks trapped, but he's not my father. I walk into school, no mat on the floor to slow down my pace, which is good since I'm late. And I approach the security desk to explain that I don't have my ID yet. She is nice. There's no menacing blonde demanding my identification number or grilling me through her shades, like I always imagined there would be. I hurry up to get to class on time and find myself waiting outside the door. The paralyzing fear that blocked the signals traveling through my spine all those years ago has suddenly struck again. It's stopping me from walking through the door, into my class, into my seat, into the next big stage of my life. I take a deep breath as everything I felt that day so many years back hits me. Hard, like an express train. The next stop is the psych ward, where Carlos is admitted for having a nervous breakdown before entering his first college class. I hear inside my head as I continue to wait outside, physically unable to take the next steps inside. But then, then I hear an even louder voice. You are a Gonzalez! It booms. And suddenly, I find strength. I find... I find the strength to step forward, the strength to start college, and the strength to remind myself that I refuse to be my father. Wow. My goodness. Carlos, it is so good to see you and to hear you. Thank you so much for being here. No, no. Thank you for having me. (laughs) What an incredible piece. Such an incredible story. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. You take us into the mind of your eight-year-old self in this piece, right? How was looking back into that moment for you? Tell us a little bit about your process of revisiting the details of this time in, in your life and writing about those details onto paper. It creates such a complete image for your audience. How, how was that? Honestly, it was extremely intense. Um, you know, a lot of those feelings that I had uh, started to resurface and you know when you start putting it down on paper you kind of start realizing that you're not really over the things that happen you know and um, yeah it, it was kind of um, it was kind of like a, a journey in and of itself just just writing it you know because you kind of think back on on how your mentality was and then you know, you, you hear your experienced voice and it's like, how, how naive could you be, you know? <laughs> and I don't know, it, it was, it was kind of bittersweet when I, when I finished it because, I mean, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it was pain, but a lot of it, a lot of that pain actually molded me into somebody that I'm actually proud to present myself as, you know? So, yeah, it was it was definitely intense, but it was definitely therapeutic. Everything that you describe in detail at the beginning of your piece from security guards, security checks, restrictions, they all foreshadow what you would later learn in your story that your your father was in prison, he wasn't in college. Mm-hmm. Um but your tone is quite innocent, and I think that this is one of the things that makes this piece very unique was the holding of that tone of this child while knowing all the more that you 
what you know now. So how hard is it to capture the innocence that comes with the younger self when you are writing this piece? Yeah, you definitely just touched on it a little bit. Um, and I um, <coughs> I mentioned this before. It's it's kind of like uh, your experienced self, you know, just keeps going. It kind of keeps getting in the way of, of the process, you know. Um, it's really hard to, you know, stay unbiased to all of these things, you know. And, and at one point, I just had to tell myself, no, like, you're not going to judge everything, you know. You're just going to document it. You're just going to document it how you saw it. And that's that was so it, you know. Yeah, so that was that that that's why I'm saying like just this this piece in in and of itself was a journey because you know it was it was so much that I had to fight back against in order to actually you know just just write it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was definitely hard, but once you get past the whole, all right, I'm just I'm not gonna judge my younger self. I'm just gonna you know document it. It definitely became effortless. It was just things just started flowing from it so yeah that's cool yeah we here at life out loud we really love the repetition of the i refuse to be a prisoner and you know i think the more that i read this line in your piece the more that i feel the relevance and the power of this line in your work i would love to know was this ever a mantra for you something that you just (laughs) kept in the back of your mind constantly or or did you come about this only when writing this particular mm. piece? Like, what made you repeat these lines? Like, what what motivated <laughs> that? <laughs> so in my family, we kind of have this whole uh, joke going on because, um, I mean, it's more of like a joke for my older siblings because they remember this more. But whenever um, my older siblings, you know, would would feel, you know, insecure or, you know, they felt like, they just needed some extra strength. My father would always tell them, like, what are you, what are you complaining about? You're a Gonzalez, like, you know? Like, and um, I don't know, like, growing up, I always had them telling me it. And, and, and um, I don't know, like, I, I only heard it from him, like, once or twice. But when I heard it from him, it was like, it was unlike what, it, it sounded unlike what my siblings made it sound like. It, it sounded so different and mm-hmm. and when when I heard it afterwards it was it definitely became a mantra especially with everything that I learned after this experience because it it, it started symbolizing so many different things you know it started symbolizing like you know I definitely don't want to be the stereotypical son of a prisoner that ends up back in prison or mm-hmm. you know and like there was just so much stuff that I was fighting against when I was growing up you know just being under this category and I mean just telling myself you are a Gonzalez it was more it was more it was more me trying to run away from from the truth kind of and 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 not even so much trying to run away from the truth but trying to create my own truth you know Mm. trying to trying to build my own you know way of thinking because you know without that father presence being there, you know, especially in a young boy's life, it's very difficult. And um, I definitely felt like in my earlier years, I felt like it was a crutch. Mm. I felt like it was something that kept, you know, stand like standing in my way because I didn't have this father figure to look up to. I didn't have this strength 
to look up to. But then I realized, you know, that was actually a blessing because I didn't have any, you know, preconceived notions of what the world was supposed to look like in terms of, you know, manhood. So I kind of got to define that on my own, you know. That's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that kind of links back into the line, um, I refuse to be a prisoner in a few ways, you know, in the more literal sense that I don't want to go to prison like my father did. (laughs) But um, it's also like I don't want to be a prisoner to to these preconceived notions of what it means to be a man. You know, especially being raised by two women, it's so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, it definitely it definitely uh, goes it goes hand in hand with me just trying to create my own story, my own, you know. Yeah. So you're a Gonzalez, but you're your own gonzalez yes you're not your father's gonzalez exactly you're carlos gonzalez exactly <laughs> that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> ah, just just seeing that like i keep calling it the behind the scenes of it the the, the thought process that goes into um the writing of a piece like this mm-hmm. that's just really amazing and notice that you divided the scenes by the striking of the clock so the clock strikes one the clock strikes four the clock strikes six why was the clock such an important element that it serves to organize your piece by scene? Like, is there a symbolism behind the clock striking, and how important was time for you at that time? Oh, man. I mean, the first reason why I even mentioned the clock was because I remember being in this in this lobby filled with prisoners and, and you know, family members, and I remember just seeing, you know, how they all looked when when their family members left and um i just i remember every time i would see somebody you know get up to leave i'd look at the clock and it's like that's gonna be me soon like that's gonna be me leaving my father soon you know (laughs) and yeah like that i i i felt like it wouldn't be right if i left that out so it's definitely i mean there's definitely more that goes into it, you know, you want to get to share. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of also um, has to do with the fact that I, I have um, a sense that I, it's just time is always fleeting, you know, mm-hmm. and and I just I wanted to cherish what was going on during the present. But I was so concerned with what was going to happen that it was kind of taking away from that present you know so i i wanted to add that in there because i wanted it to give a sense that this isn't going to last forever you know so yeah touching on that note with this isn't going to last forever you had also mentioned earlier that you were raised by two women and Mm -hmm. one of them being your mother obviously Mm -hmm. so how was that conversation the conversation that basically went along the lines of you know mom i realized my dad is in prison and, and, like was that something that was was touched on did she say you know this isn't going to be forever is that why time is such a an oh, important thing too yeah. in, in in this retrospect definitely um you know it's time is so funny um especially when it comes to uh, when i think about time in respect to this piece because I mean, afterwards, like, you know, when I, I caused that whole scene in front of all these strangers, 
my mom, she just she didn't know what to do. You know, mm. my sister was with her, and they're just both shocked that they 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 thought themselves that they had more time to you know I guess come up with a good way of explaining things. You know, mm. but <laughs> it's funny how time works. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, and uh, man, I just I just remember being so upset with everybody. You know, that not just my mom, but everybody that knew, you know, because I mm. felt so betrayed. Yeah. I felt so betrayed. I felt like I was like my whole life was alive, yeah. you know, and that conversation didn't, you know, really happen until like a few years afterwards when I was mm. really fully able to understand. I mean, they briefly touched on it, but, you know, I mean. I guess, I guess, yeah, they, they just, I guess they needed more time for themselves. I mean, I, I, I mean, just thinking about it now, just how does a mother explain that to her son, yeah. you know, and, and, and how does, how does a sister, you know, who's been going along with this so, for so long, you know, dealing with it herself, mm -hmm. like, how does she break the news to her, to her little brother, one that she's also, you know, taking care of, you yeah. know, so it's definitely, definitely, definitely not easy to talk about. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, sometimes. But again, we all we all see what happened to my father not as a bad thing. We actually see it as a blessing in disguise, mm -hmm. you know. So, just keeping it in that kind of mindset definitely helps. Yeah. That's beautiful that you guys think about that. Yeah. Think mm -hmm. about something that others would, would view so tragically as, as something that actually helped your your family, yeah. mended those relationships. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And so many emotions right now running yes. around in this room. <laughs> 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 but Absolutely. I want to thank you, Carlos, for opening up to us and, and sharing that piece, no, that's no. a wonderful piece. Thank yeah. you guys for listening. For our last story tonight, we have On the Run by Veleslava Boisanova. Veleslava is originally from Bulgaria, but now lives in Queens, New York. She is double majoring in political science and economics at John Jay. In her free time, Veleslava teaches a parrot to talk and a cat to turn the water faucet on and off. She likes photography and can also be a film critic sometimes. Let's listen to her piece that is being read by Tatiana Molovana. It's a sunny spring day in Bulgaria. You're about six years old. You go to the farmer's market with your mom, grandma, and your baby brother, who's two years old at the time. You only remember that you bought potatoes because fries are your favorite dish. When you're done at the farmer's market, your grandma says, You guys were really good today. The store across the street has really good cakes. Let's go get you one. You earned it. You're not exactly sure how, but who are you to say no to cake? Your brother has just learned how to walk, so he's already tired. Your mom carries him in one hand and the potato bag in the other while your grandmother carries all the white plastic bags that hold fruits and vegetables. You walk hands-free and carefree in the front to get cake. You are ready for cake. You get to the small grocery-like store. Your mom decides to wait outside with your brother. Not to make traffic, she says, with all the bags and me carrying him. Your grandmother agrees and leaves the bags on the ground near her. Come on now, she says to you, hold my hand and don't leave my side. The store is about only 35 feet long, so you can't understand why she's being so cautious. 
but you obey nevertheless. You always obey. You walk inside the store with her. There's just one aisle. On the right, there are refrigerators with drinks, and on the left, refrigerated display counters with ham, butter, and cheese. The cakes are located all the way at the end of the aisle, near the register. You choose a chocolate rectangular one. You have to let go of your grandmother's hand as she pays for it. That's when you feel a gentle tap on your shoulder. Who could it be? Your mom probably got tired of waiting. It's probably her. Or maybe your brother got bored and came to play. You whip around happily and expect to see one of them, or maybe even both. You plan to tell them the kind of cake you picked. But it's not them. It's not either of them. Instead, you see a strange man. His dark brown shoulder-length hair looks dirty and oily from the roots all the way to the tips, which are fixed of stringy chunks. He's wearing all black, black leather boots, black jeans, a long black jacket. He reminds you of the boogeyman. Grandma said you've been good today, so what could he want? Hi, little girl, he says. You instinctually know that this is the moment they've all warned you about. The moment you're supposed to remember, don't talk to strangers. You try to squeeze yourself between your grandma and the counter so that you're hidden and her body guards you. What is it, she asks, annoyed. Why are you pushing me? She's angry by your persistence in drilling yourself into her. You look at her with wide eyes and say nothing. Instead, you move your eyes back and forth. You look back at the man, then to her, then back and forth again. She takes your hint and turns around. That's when he says, That's my girl. Give her back to me. Your grandma doesn't miss a beat. She never does. No, she's not, she says. Leave us alone. Could you please hurry up with the change in the cake? She abruptly tells the cashier. She grabs your hand and starts heading for the exit. So fast, she drags you behind. The way she pulls you makes you feel like your arm is about to get detached. You feel like you're in trouble, even though you know you're not. Slow down, you want to shout. Then you look back and see the boogeyman behind. All of a sudden, you forget the pain from the dragging and start running so you can keep up with your grandma. Outside, your mom says, What's going on? Just take your son and walk in front, your grandma commands, while picking up the bags from the ground with one hand. Boogeyman still follows. You quickly glance over your shoulder as you're still being dragged. That's my girl, he starts screaming. It's as almost as the entire neighborhood can hear him. Give me back my girl. You took her away from me. I've been looking for her for so long. I want my daughter back, you hear him screaming as he tries to keep up with you. He never tries to grab you, though. He just demands you. You notice how tall he is. You look up at him like a skyscraper. You can barely reach his waist. What does he mean by my daughter anyway? You know that daddy's in London working hard to provide for your family. You're confused. How can you say that you're his daughter while your dad is in England? You decide that you really must look like his daughter. She's probably a doppelganger of you. You wonder how the boogeyman found you anyway and what happened to his real daughter. Does he have a picture of her right now in his wallet? He's still following you, and now you're almost running. You think about your German shepherd, Sarah. Where is she when you need her? She always keeps you safe. Where is she now? Someone please help us, your grandma cries out as you cross the street. A man from the market hears her cries and comes to the rescue. Do you know him, he questions, sounding concerned. Would we be asking for help if we knew him, asked your mom, annoyed but mostly scared. You can see that she's flustered. She is always much more flustered than your grandma. That's all the man needs to hear. He swiftly takes the boogeyman down. All it takes is one push. He's now lying there on the ground, like a stray dog who has no one. Grown-ups are strong, you think. The push must have been really hard. You hope he didn't get hurt when he fell. The man from the market is standing over him. 
not letting him get up until you're at a safe distance. You're happy that the boogeyman has stopped from taking you, but you wonder if he deserves this. He just simply mistook you for his daughter, you think. No need to be rude. Why wouldn't he just let him get up? Your mom thinks the man from the farmer's market as you all keep on walking. You never stop walking, not for a second, but you do keep looking back. You don't know what happens next. Is Boogeyman okay? You wonder, is he hurt? Did anyone call the cops? Is he in jail? You hope he's not in jail. You never speak of this again, but the memory of him laying on the ground, tears in his eyes, watching you leave haunts you your whole life. Over the next years, that image resurfaces often, every time as painful as it was on that nice spring day. It's like you're there again and it's starting all over. Every time you wonder if he found his daughter and why she was taken away from him to begin with. Until one day, it hits you. Maybe you are his daughter. Maybe your parents aren't who you think they are. Perhaps they kidnapped you when you were a baby and made you believe they are your real parents. Well, in fact, poor Boogeyman is your real father. Maybe he spent six long years searching for you. And when he finally found you, he was pushed down on the ground like a criminal while you were on the run from him. You probably cried that night as you ate your chocolate cake. Where is he now? Why didn't he ever try again? Why didn't he come back for you? Why did he give up, you sometimes wonder. You run to the mirror and see a reflection of your mom and your dad's eyes staring right back at you. Boogeyman is not your dad. You know that. So why do you feel so connected to him? That piece was so unexplainably heartwarming, and we actually have Elislava here in the studio to talk to us about her piece now, and it is so nice to have you here today, Velislava. Thank you for coming. Yes, it was so good, and it's so nice to see you here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. You? I'm, I'm good. <laughs> we're good. We're, we're happy to have you here, yeah, that's for we're, sure. <laughs> we're happy to be able to talk about this innocent piece. Oh my goodness. Um... So yes, thank you. This is a wonderful story. And one of the many things I like about this piece is that it is so brilliantly told from the perspective of a child with this overall voice of innocence that's just like continuous throughout. I felt as if I was in a movie watching the whole piece in my mind. Tatiana, who voices this, really sounds like a six-year-old in this piece. And it's really amazing. So, Velislava, could you tell us about your process when you were writing this piece? Like, was it hard for you to tap into your inner child at all and write the piece from this perspective of a younger self? Well, actually, I originally wrote in first-person perspective, speaking from now with the voice of experience. Mm. But it was so hard to actually go through every single detail and really the incident itself that for my second draft, I decided to switch it to a second-person pers perspective. Mm. And the the voice of a child actually helped me get through the piece and say it in a detailed way that, you know, the person reading it can actually feel what I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Be in the moment with you. Yeah, yeah. it's very interesting. It, it was it awesome. Worked. I'm so glad yeah. that you did end up doing it in, yeah. in a Thank second you. person. It worked really well. <laughs> so... Your description of the boogeyman and the grocery store, it's just, it's so vivid and real. You provide very specific details. And when I listen to this piece, I see everything happening before me. 
I can picture a six-year-old little girl staring at this man and not saying a word because she's not supposed to be speaking with strangers, which is a rule that I'm pretty sure we are all yeah, familiar with. Everyone, everyone, don't speak to <laughs> strangers. Much. But how hard was it when you think back about these details? Like, how many drafts did you go through to get this piece to be so specific with such wonderful descriptions and, again, such such vivid character? The the, the drafts were about five. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Dedication, my friend. <laughs> All good pieces go through a bunch of drafts. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a long process. But the details themselves weren't really that hard because I always had an, an eye for detail. And that store was like a corner store in my neighborhood. I would always go there until I moved here. So it wasn't hard to picture it back and describe it. Mm. It was home. It was home. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. So in the scene where you describe the boogeyman being thrown to the floor like a dog, it's a very painful scene because after, I think this is a scene that I sympathize the most with the boogeyman because it sheds light on the reality that many homeless people face. And that is that they are constantly dehumanized because they don't necessarily act like a lot of us. And people don't really stop to think about events that can lead a person to become homeless. And your story makes me think that the boogeyman maybe lost his mind at some point, unfortunately, and became homeless after he lost his daughter. And I would love to know, how do you feel about this man now? Viewing him now from this, you know, um, reflective voice, how do you feel about him? You're absolutely right. I always thought the same thing. I never really... Until that piece was was workshopped, I never really thought that men just wanted to, you know, one person in class actually suggested that it might have been related to sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. That never even crossed my mind until it was workshopped. Wow. wow. So, yeah, I always felt that, I don't know if he was homeless, but there was definitely something wrong. Mm-hmm. I just thought that maybe he just lost his daughter and he really was looking for her. Mm-hmm. Had he lost his mind? I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Things that lead us to that is the description of him with this really oily hair and just being so dirty. So you can kind of create your own idea of what you think this person would be. Or even living in New York now and Mm -hmm. we walk on the subway and down the street and we see so so much vagrancy. Yeah. And it makes us wonder, like, at least for me, yes, like, how did these these people's families feel when they lost them kind of thing? Right. That's so sad, man. <laughs> um, so there's this one part of the piece that you wonder if you are actually the boogeyman's daughter, which had me amazed, and and I guess had a I would assume had a lot of the audience wondering too, mm-hmm. like was this Vilslava's long lost father <laughs> <laughs> come to claim her again? But I I just can't help but wonder: Did you ever sit with your family and and ask them why? this boogeyman thought that you were his daughter? And if so, did they react? Like, was there a conversation that we would love to hear about? That's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> so boogeyman was not my father. And although I wondered, oh, I always goodness. knew it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Oh my gosh. I never spoke to my family about it. Oh. Yeah. It's something that I've been pushing out of my memory for so long. Mm-hmm. I've actually only told one person about that two years ago, and very briefly. I've never 
went through that process that the way it was written in the essay. So mm. I never spoke to them and they never spoke to me. Maybe they were hoping that I had forgotten. Mm. So telling them that I still remember, I didn't want to hurt them. Yeah. So I just let it go. Because making a sense of something that obscure with so many questions attached to it and at the time also quite scary because your family is just trying to protect you and they're remembering this man that they feel must have hurt you but you're viewing him as someone almost endearing in a light so to go back to that and think what was actually happening i imagine would be very very strange for your family to hear probably and especially for you to like come to to come to the senses too. What was that process like of thinking about this? Like, did you think immediately, I want to write about this boogeyman that I've thought about for so many years, but never actually spoke to anyone about? No, not really. I would just get like flashbacks randomly about specific scenes of what happened, and then I would just like not write or think about it at all. But then I had to write an essay. <laughs> <laughs> And a flashback came, so I was like, mm-hmm. okay, might as well be it. Yeah. Let's get it over with, get it out there. And it was actually very therapeutic. That's oh. good. Yeah. It seems like it. it <laughs> I, I didn't experience this, but I, I feel relieved to have listened yeah. to it and to have yeah, I feel lived through it with it. you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So if you came across this boogeyman now, what would you tell him? How would you react? And would you ask him anything in particular? Um, wow. <laughs> Now's your moment. Maybe he's listening. Life Out Loud podcast listeners, if you feel that this is an accurate description of you or someone you know, please, please let us know. Us immediately. <laughs> we are sorry for calling you the boogeyman. Mandraza <laughs> will have sure you write an essay about it real quick. For real. <laughs> oh my. Well, I guess the first thing I would ask is if he found his daughter. Mm-hmm. I really felt that he did lose her and he was looking for her and maybe that drove him mad and he appeared to be crazy and maybe psychotic. So I would really want to know if he found his daughter. That's honestly all I care about. Can I tell you how I felt when I read this Go first ahead. minute? <laughs> just that I felt like you you wanted to be his daughter just to relieve him of this pain and this anguish that he felt throughout and That's it, <laughs> it's just how I, I guess for me as a listener when I heard this for the first time it really moved me into to wanting to just take away that pain from someone so yeah that that's true I mean I never wanted to be anyone else's daughter than my father's but <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to be anybody else's <laughs> parents you know I mean child but but if I could help him get rid of that pain i definitely would have loved to and you know i also wonder what happened to him after that yeah you know we just left him there i don't know what happened did he go to jail or not did anyone call the cops i don't know i wonder yeah well well thank you we just want to say thank you to our writers today to our sound engineers and editors our episode writers our website developer everyone There's a lot of people behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud, and you can find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or tune into Radio 568 at John Jay. And a very special thank you to the audience for joining us. 
we hope all of you love these stories as much as we so obviously did. Um, yeah. It was a joy to bring them to you, and I hope all of you have a great night.